0: Hello everybody. You can tell our youth were at camp last week. We are going to share a video about that, but it'll be next Sunday because it takes a while to put these things together. But we haven't forgotten. We'll, we'll be giving you a nice report on the youth camp. But let me just say up front, it was a really great experience. Um, so the- Those of you who helped uh, kids get there, who helped uh, supply money for them to be able to go, uh, know that your, your money was well spent. Um, okay, well, believe it or not, I am finally coming back to Second Corinthians. Uh, we're continuing in our series of messages from Second Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay. Let me tell you a bit about myself. For many years, I lived an easy, happy life. My parents, growing up, loved each other. In fact, they remained married until they both passed away. And they loved me my whole life. I was loved by my parents. Because of them, I was able to go to college. I was able to get a degree. Because of them, when I was visiting, I met the woman who would become my wife. Beautiful wife. Just made everything better. And to Piled blessing upon blessing, we had two wonderful children. I had a lot of fun with my kids, probably more than I should have. Uh, I never expected anything bad to happen. Uh, But things didn't stay easy or simple in my life. You guys know, because the past 12 years I've been here, but in the final couple of years of high school, my son decided he was an atheist rejected the Christian faith um, and struggled with uh, suicide, addiction, to this day, he's still battling these demons. It's been years now. I couldn't begin to catalog for you the sorrows I've faced over the past 10 years, the Sundays I've come up to preach not knowing if my son was alive. Some of these sorrows continue to this day, unresolved. It's like a dull ache, a chronic pain in my soul. I'll tell you a secret. Pastors deal with the same crap everybody else deals with. It's true. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because your kids are putting you through the same thing. Life is painful and hard, and this is true for Christians just like it is for anybody else. So you might wonder, what's the difference? Why even be a Christian if we don't get exempted in some way? Well, let's see what Paul had to say about this. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 16, and we'll go through chapter 5, verse 10. I have titled the message today, Walking into Eternity the first word we read here is so I could have also translated that therefore Uh, and you know the old adage anytime you see therefore you need to figure out what it's there for so what has he been talking about before? And perhaps I should review because it's been a number of weeks since we covered that text. But it is the one that I, uh, I chose the title for the whole series from. This idea in the passage immediately before this, Paul is talking about our lives as simple jars of clay. I mean, the least valuable jar you could imagine, the most fragile, the most dispensable, least glorious jar you could think of. That's what we are. You could shatter us in an instant. And yet, Christ has deigned to abide in us. So we become these simple jars of clay that contain the greatest treasure there is. And because of that, Paul talks about how we live and. Uh, uh, we believe and therefore we act and we, we operate in life out of a confidence not that, is, that is not born of what we are. We're nothing, but that is born of the incalculable worth of Christ who is in us. That's what he's been talking about. So, because of that, we don't get discouraged But even if our outer person is wearing out, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction of this moment is working in us an eternal burden of glory beyond all measure and proportion. As we focus not on the things that are seen, but on those that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things not seen are eternal. Paul says we don't get discouraged and you might think yeah Paul's one of those Christians you know that says you you have to smile through everything you have to tell you know how are you doing blessed you know that's your that's your standard answer to everything and you never say i feel awful today my life is falling apart We never say that kind of stuff. And you might think that's what Paul's talking about. We don't get discouraged. We're always upbeat and happy and positive. But let me remind you that in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul has told these same readers he's writing to, we were facing uh, an affliction that was so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of living. And you'll find in this whole letter that Paul is very blunt and open and honest about all the scars he bears from the years of ministry he's been living. He's been beaten. He's been betrayed. He's been hounded. He has been maligned. He has suffered all of these kinds of things. And he knows that these are not easy things to just brush off. But he says, because of the worth of Christ... In us because of that reality we do not get discouraged why does Paul keep on keeping on because of Jesus and he's honest about the reality our outer person the word there anthropos our outer man is wearing out Paul is bearing the, the, the beatings. He's been flogged three times. He's been beaten with rods once. He's been stoned and left for dead. He has gone through all of this. And I can assure you, his body bears the weight of that. And he says, we're wearing out. And Paul is describing his, his life as, it's just, I'm realizing day after day that my body cannot do what it used to could do. I am being spent. I am wearing out. But he says, you know, at the same time that this is happening, and that's the human experience, right? It's this deterioration, it's a a death march, right? Our body is in the process of dying. It's going to happen. Yet there's something going in the exact opposite direction. He says our inner uh, is being renewed day by day. So there's one process in my life where I can see deterioration. It's just falling apart. It's a systematic dismantling of this life. And yet at the same time, something is being built up every single day. There's something happening and something being added that was not there before. And day by day, I am aware of this. There are two realities in my life. How to describe it? Well, here's on one side, we have light affliction of this moment. That's how Paul describes whatever it is he's just been through that caused him to despair of living. He describes it as a light affliction Right now, affliction. The the word there translated of this moment, some translations say momentary. But it has the idea of right now, right this very moment. It's, It's the immediate reality of the moment. But by very definition, that is a very transitory thing. Because this moment will be over quickly. It's light. It hurts. And it's right now. That's on one side of the balance. What's on the other side? There's an eternal burden, weight of glory. So one side is light, the other is extremely heavy. On one side, it's affliction, the other side, it's glory. And if this one is uh, momentary, on the other side, it's eternal. And if one, it's a light affliction. The other, it's a glory, a burden, a weight of glory beyond all measure and proportion. The Greek there kind of reads like from one superlative into the next. I mean, you feel like you've reached the maximum and there's still more to go. When you think it can't get any any more glorious, there's more glory to be found. That's how Paul weighs the things. And it's because of this side of the balance that Paul can describe an overwhelming affliction that causes him to despair of living as a light of this moment affliction. Because what's on the other side is so much bigger. It pales in comparison. And when we we think of the, the afflictions and the hardships and the struggles we face right now and we put on the other side of the balance the eternal glory Christ is bringing to bear on our living, we realize there's no balancing that. This is nothing. This is everything. And what does that do to the way we go about living? He says, well, we focus... Not on the things that are seen. You know what you see clearly? In in crisp detail? What you see clearly is whatever is hurting you right now. That consumes our horizon and demands all of our attention. We want to focus all of our attention on what hurts. And we see that. We focus on it. Paul says, that's not how I live my life. I don't focus on what I'm seeing here right now. I don't focus on this momentary reality that I am facing. I focus on what I'm not seeing yet. I focus on what God's doing in my heart through all of this. The stuff that anybody outside can't see but I know my heart and I know I'm not the same person I was. Paul says that God is using this momentary affliction to work in us this burden, this weight. And I think Paul might have that Hebrew word in his mind, kavod, which means a burden or a heavy weight. But it also means glory. Because in the Hebrew mindset, the glory of God is not some uh, flippant light thing. It is as heavy as the cosmos itself That's the weight, the burden of the glory of God. this, This thing that is causing me pain right now, God is using it to work in me his glory. So he says, we don't focus on what we're seeing. We focus on what God is doing that is not seen. We don't focus on the things that are causing us the affliction. We focus on the God who is using those things to bring this weight of glory into our lives. He says the things that are seen are temporary. All this stuff you're obsessing about, this stuff that consumes your horizon and that you're looking at and focusing all of your energy and attention on is not going to be here forever. There will come a day, if you have trusted your heart to Christ, there will come a day when you will have experienced your final affliction. There will come a day when you will have shed your first, your last sorrowful tear ever. There will come a day when all of this will be gone forever. And all that will remain is this eternal weight of glory beyond all proportion and measure. Things not seen are eternal. The things God is building in us are going to stick around forever. The ways in which he is shaping our hearts... That's going to stick around. And I have experienced this in my life. Uh, I have seen how God has used the past 10 years of my life to shape my heart. You may think affliction is just affliction, but in God's hands, affliction is his way of introducing glory into our lives. And I know that today I am a different pastor than I was 10 years ago. I used to look at parents who had children who were giving them trouble and think, I wonder what they did wrong. Admit it, we all start out that way. Until it's our kids that are causing the problems. But you think, no, surely if you did it right, if you love them and did all this stuff right and taught them about Christ, if you do all these things and have the right priorities as a parent and you do all of this, then you've guaranteed it. Well, no. You can love your kids all you want. And you can do all you want for them. But sooner or later, it's going to be their choice. And you can't make that choice for anyone. Nobody made it for you. We have to make our own choice and and I have learned a compassion for parents that I didn't have before. I was arrogant. I thought I knew it all. I can see that's an unseen bit of glory that God has brought into my life. And this is the amazing thing about God, that he takes the garbage of this life. He takes the worst and uses it to bring glorious things into our lives. So what do we focus on? Do we focus on the the mess? Do we focus on the stuff here that is all out of whack and that is uh, hurting us? Or do we focus on what God's doing? I have a question for you from these opening verses. How have you experienced affliction and things that wear you out, resulting in glorious evidences of life? Let's keep reading in chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, should be demolished, We have a building from God, a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. And indeed we groan in this our dwelling, longing to put on over it the heavenly dwelling. If indeed having been clothed, we may not be found naked. For we who are in the tent are groaning, burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be fully clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Before I dive into these verses, let me give you a little Greek philosophy background. And in Corinth, surely this was the the dominant strain of thought because Plato, who lived 427 to 347, something like that, um, Plato was a very influential Greek philosopher. I'm saying he lived, you know, B.C., so he lived centuries earlier, but uh, he had really shaped Greek thought, and we are Western thinkers, we are Greek thinkers, that's the way we think. So uh, he uh, reasoned that there is an immaterial aspect to human living and there's a material aspect and the material is this thing you can observe that is constantly in need of attention because it's always falling apart and decaying and decomposing and being destroyed and it's heavy and and clunky uh, but there's some... Inner reality, uh, the, the spark within, uh, that the, the spirit of man. And he thought, that is the good stuff. That is the good part of us. That is the pure and noble and eternal aspect. And it's not like all this clunky matter. And his idea was that spirit is good and eternal matter is bad, evil, and temporary. To the point that for Greeks... Their hope, if they had any hope of something beyond death, was that they could escape the prison of the, of the body and be free-floating spirits. Do you see how we are Greek thinkers? Have you seen that in modern times? How many of you have seen Star Wars? What happens when Darth Vader hits Obi-Wan with his lightsaber? Where does his body go? Poof, right? Body's gone. And what is Obi-Wan now? He's a free-floating spirit. That's the ideal, right? To escape the prison of the body, this clunky thing that's always falling apart and needs so much maintenance. And moving on to just being a free, it's seen as absolute freedom to be a free-floating spirit. And some people, even, have, even Christians sometimes, are thinking that way. That's the background of what Paul is talking about here. Let's see what Paul has to say about this idea of bodies And And by the way, when Paul is on the hill of Ares, the Areopagus in Athens, and he's preaching about Jesus, everybody's hanging on his every word until he gets to the point where he talks about Jesus rising from the dead. That's the moment the Greeks lost interest because they didn't want resurrection. They wanted to escape the body, not keep it. What does Paul have to say about this? Well, he describes our living here as being in an earthly house or a tent. And he's already said, this thing is this outer me, this outer guy, this... It's wearing out, man. It is falling apart. That is the reality. Okay, so if it should be demolished, if this thing falls apart completely, if it's dismantled, I'm okay because I have a building from God. A house that no human formed, a house that is eternal, that comes from God's perfect place of dwelling. From the heavens itself, God has brought down to me this other living, this other house. So we might be thinking, okay, yeah, maybe he is talking about that. You get rid of this clunky body and you're just some kind of spiritual being. God has... Uh, prepared for you a spiritual existence. But notice that Paul is using the same term, house, for both of them. So that the idea isn't of being disembodied, but of being better-bodied. In fact, he he gets more into it. Indeed, we groan in this our dwelling, longing to put on over it the heavenly dwelling, and the word he uses there in the Greek, some translations just say to put on, but <coughs> literally that word means to put on on top of. So uh, he says, we, what, what we long is not to be done with this, but to put on top of this eternal glory. So that we may be fully clothed rather than found naked. And that is the Greek ideal Paul is rejecting. This idea of a spirit unshackled by a body, he says, he describes that as being naked. It's a common thing uh, today. There are a lot of shows about ghosts. Uh, and some of them are comedies, right? And what's the big frustration with ghosts? That they can't interact with the physical world. They can't pick anything up. They can't talk to people. They can't, They're. Uh, Unable to interact because they have no body with which to interact. Paul says, he describes that as nakedness. That is not what we want. We want to be clothed better, not less. We want better body. We want more life, not less. He says, we who are in the tent are groaning. We're burdened. We don't want to be unclothed. We want to be fully clothed. We want what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. What a picture. It's not just putting on an overcoat, but that this is just engulfed completely by life. The one who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God has set us up for this and we might think Paul is just talking here about this physical body and about being given a better physical body and I think Paul is talking about that but I would say let's think a little broader than that perhaps Paul is here talking about the whole reality of the human existence we are inhabiting right now where all of me is tainted and broken by sin it's not just my body that has a problem my mind has a problem I don't always think right my spirit has a problem I don't always yearn for the good Sometimes I yearn for the bad and from my spirit come things like cruelty or, or jealousy or, or greed. Those aren't body-bound instincts. Those are spirit, soul-bound sins and problems. So this whole thing is falling apart. This whole existence I have is crumbling and is being dismantled. What I long for is for God to take this and redeem it through and through. I want not just a new body. I want a new mind. I want a new spirit. I want not not a different one. I want God to take what's here and swallow it up in life. Transform it into eternal glory. That is the Christian longing. For God to take all of this and make it life. God has prepared us for this very thing, and what has he done? He has given us the Spirit as a down payment. Why do you give a down payment? When you're going to buy a home, they say, you have to give us 20% of the value of the house right now. Why do you give that 20%? Well, it's a way of conveying your commitment to pay the rest of it, right? Right? You give a down payment as a security that you will deliver on all the payments necessary until you have completely paid for what you said you were going to buy. You realize that's the metaphor Paul is using for salvation? That God is buying us? And He's given a down payment on that purchase. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it. God does not renege on his debts. If God says he's going to pay it, he's going to pay it. This is one of these passages in the Bible that speaks to the idea of the security of the believer. The reason I can be confident that God will absolutely save me through and through is not that I think I'm going to work my way into it somehow. It's not based on how faithful I am. My confidence is completely dependent on the faithfulness of the God who said, I'm buying you. I'll pay what I have to pay to purchase you completely. So uh, our, our security is found in God, and the Spirit is a gift God gives us as a down payment on that. So you might think, all of this Paul is describing sounds uh, too good to be true. It's just wishful thinking. It's just, I'm, if I were to ponder what I would love to have, this is what I'd like to have. Uh, that's not it at all. You see, if the Spirit is the down payment, it means that we have started to receive this already. God has started to pay it already. And guess what? That was just the down payment. God is paying installments through our whole lives as he uses every light and momentary affliction to increase the burden of eternal glory in our hearts and lives. The Spirit is the starting point. And every moment of our living, God is continuing to pay off the debt. I have another question I'd like you to ponder for a moment. How have you experienced Christ covering the ugliness of this world with the glory of his life in your own living? Let's finish verses 6 through 10. So being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk through faith, not through sight, we are of good courage. While we would rather be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord, so also it is our aspiration, whether we are at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of the Christ. So that each person may receive back the things that they accomplish through the body, whether good or evil. So how does Paul live his life, given all he's talked about here? Well, he says, we're always of good courage. Let me tell you, it requires courage to live this life well. Uh, it, it, the, the ability to face affliction with courage and a willingness to even sometimes put yourself in the situation where you know you will be hurt, where you know suffering will take place, to have the courage to step into obedience and to go where God calls you, even when you know that it's going to have a cost, to live with courage. And embracing the reality that we are always going to be unsatisfied in this living. Because every, to every moment we live here at home in this body, in this reality of existence we have right now, we know we are absent from the Lord. The Lord, when he rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of Father. And that is why, in my whole life, I have not hugged Jesus once. I have never laid eyes on him. I have never talked with him face to face. Because while I am here, he is not. Not in that sense. And Paul parenthetically says, that's the way we walk. We walk through faith, not sight. We walk through a trust relationship with Christ that is built on the indwelling presence of his spirit. We're not making it up. It's as real as anything in our lives. But we are walking based on that unseen reality of living, not the things we can see right now. And he repeats himself. We're of good courage. And he says, honestly, I'd rather be absent from the body and be at home. I'd rather be done with all of this and be at rest with Christ. Uh, especially when you're in the middle of the suffering there are days where it's like god i've had enough i'm i'm just take me we'd rather be at home with the lord but guess what we don't have a death wish why not because we have an aspiration in living whether we are at home or absent, whether I'm here or there, this is an eternal aspiration. We will be aspiring to this forever, to be pleasing to him. I have no death wish because I have a life I want to live for Christ. I do. He has given me everything, and I want to give him all I can All he has placed in my hands. I want to give to him everything I can. And I strive, I aspire to be pleasing to him. And here's the reminder. We must all appear before the judgment seat of the Christ. I have a video I took on my recent trip of the actual. This is the famous bema. That's the Greek word for it. So what you have here, this is in Corinth. This would be the one they would be familiar with. It's kind of this raised thing. See all those people up there? That wouldn't have been just tourists walking around. That would have been where the the person in authority would be seated. And if you're brought before him, you have some kind of complaint against you, you would be brought before this raised thing, and the person sitting in judgment would be there at the top. You'd be down at the bottom, and notice here, see this half column there? So if the judgment was you're guilty and you need to be whipped, they'd tie you to that thing and whip you right there. And this thing was in the, in, in the agora, the, the marketplace. Uh, it was a feature of, of the, the public marketplace, and you can stop that. It's just looping. They'd be very familiar with this idea of a judgment seat, somebody in authority, and you are brought before him, and your case is heard, and they determine... The truth of the situation, and if, uh, if, if there's punishment to be meted, it's meted. This is kind of the balance to the security of the believer that we were talking about earlier, right? The Spirit of God is the down payment God is going to deliver. That does not erase the significance of the life we live right now. So if you think once saved, always saved means whatever I do the rest of my life is immaterial... You're absolutely wrong because you are one day going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to give an answer to him for what you did with the life he put in your hands. Whether good or bad, good or evil. Uh, The New Testament, I think, makes it clear that for those who have believed in Jesus, that moment will not be a moment of being lost. Of Jesus saying, well, you didn't do good enough. I'm going to reject you because your salvation is not dependent on how good you managed to be. It's dependent on how good Jesus is. But the New Testament also makes it very clear that some of us are going to have a really bad day on that day. And we're going to look back and say, man, I should have done so much more. Why? Why? Did I squander everything he put in my hands? Why did I throw it all away for that? It's gone now. I have nothing to show for 40 years of life. Nothing to bring before him and say, thanks for what you gave me. You gave me 10. Here are 10 more. We don't want to live our lives that way. We don't want to focus all of our attention on things that don't matter. We want to live our lives to be pleasing to him so that when we stand before that judgment seat, we can say, here are the things that I, the things I allowed to happen in my life because I simply opened up to them. You were doing this, you were working through all of these things, and I surrendered to it, and here's what, here's what came of it, God. God. I have one final question for you today. How are you being intentional about living your life to be pleasing to Jesus? This is the Christian life. We face face affliction right now. Our bodies are wearing out. The burdens and wounds suffered in our journey through this life accumulate but because of Jesus suddenly these things feel light momentary it's because God is redeeming us taking all the worst the world has to throw at us and using it to transform us into glorious eternal life As one life is wasting away being spent, another is being birthed in us by God's Holy Spirit. And it is growing day by day. We focus on Him, (coughs) on the unseen work His Spirit is carrying out in our lives and in the world around us. We spend ourselves with one clear goal in mind. To be pleasing to Christ Who gave us eternal life. We progress toward that day of encounter when we will give an account of this life to the one who has guaranteed us glorious life forever. Are you walking in this path of eternal life in Christ? We're going to sing a song right now and this is our time in the service where we respond to God and what he has said to us in his word. Maybe you don't know Jesus. You've not surrendered your heart to him yet. I want to challenge you today to have the courage to step out of this living and step into eternal living. Trust your heart to him. Maybe you already know him and today's been a reminder, man, you have been focusing way too much on the momentary light afflictions you are in right now and have lost sight of the eternal weight of glory that I am bringing to bear in your life. Maybe it's a moment of of repentance and saying, God, forgive me for taking my eyes off you and putting them on myself. Whatever it is God is calling you to this morning, don't just sit there. Come forward, share with somebody, and let them pray with you and encourage you because we are doing this walk together. And this is the time where we do that. Let's all stand. There'll be people here at the front on either side. Come, share what God's put on your heart with them and let them pray with you. Come while we sing.